Hello and welcome to the Codex Prime Podcast. We are on episode 228 and it is Wednesday, February 10th, 2021. I am your host, Victor Omoyo, and with me as always is my co-host and social media chair, Carl Bird. What's happening, everybody? Yes, indeed. And joining us in the Zoom studios is a, a noted author and freelance writer. Um, he is the author of the 2018 book, Homie Don't Play That, the story of In Living Color and the Black Comedy Revolution. Um, he's also the author of South by Southwest Uncensored, the complete oral history as told by the entrepreneurs, geeks, and dreamers who remade the web in 2014. And he's also the co-author of Steve-O's New York Times bestselling memoir from 2011, Professional Idiot. He's also a freelance writer for such publications as New York Times, Esquire, Rolling Stone, Playboy, uh, The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, TV Guide, Spin, Billboard, Vibe, Fast Company, and others. Ladies and gentlemen and party people, please give it up for Mr. David Peisner. Welcome, sir. Thank you so much. That was definitely the most complete uh, introduction I've probably had in my life. <laughs> uh, you know, it almost sounded impressive when you when you when you put it all together like that. It sounds like I've actually been working for the past twenty five years. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, you know, we're you know we're glad glad to have you on. You know, um, uh, we. Uh, you know, we both of us, uh, Carl and I, we read your uh, your book uh, on In Living Color, Homie Don't Play That, which was an excellent read, uh, fantastic work. And so, you know, we'll we'll uh, definitely talk about it, like the process behind the book. You know, what inspired you to to do it, some some things you learned uh, it, during your research, um, and then you know, just see where where the conversation takes us. You know, so it'll be pretty pretty free form. Um, Yep, and also I'm just looking in our chat here. A uh, friend of the show, Angela Marandola, is joining us. Uh, what's up? Uh, so yeah, uh, so yeah, Mr. Bird, where should we begin? Uh, things that you've been up to, what Dave's been up to. What I, I, I want to get, I want to get into this. This this show has been like a staple in my childhood. Granted. I shouldn't have been watching it between ages of five and ten. <laughs> but what was cool about it was that it you like even as a kid, even though I didn't really get all the jokes, I it still like it still had like like it was still funny to me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's the the interesting thing about the show and especially, you know, I I watched it uh when it was first out. Um, you know, I was uh how old was I? High school? Yeah, I guess it was high school when it first came out. And, um, you know, to watch it then and then to watch it, na- you know, now-ish, I mean, a couple years ago when I went back and I watched the whole thing again when I was uh, getting ready to write the book, um, there's a lot of different levels to the humor. Some of it's just really silly, and, and you would get it as a kid, you know. Um, and then there's stuff that, uh, yeah, like – that you wouldn't get back then or uh, even stuff that I didn't get back then. And, you know, and it's also like anything else, there's stuff that's aged well and there's stuff that hasn't aged very well. Um, but, you know, a, a surprising, you know, I think with any sketch show, you know, having talked to a lot of like people who write sketch shows and work on sketch shows, I think if you're batting about 50% of this, 50% of the sketches are, are funny you're doing well, and that's in the time that they're made. I would say, you know, a good percentage, probably way over the, than 50% of the In Living Color stuff is still funny now. It still holds up. 
which is, you know, I, I mean, I think that's that, that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we did just get right into the show, but yeah, tell us some more about yourself. You know, Vic just gave a very elaborate introduction, but yeah, tell us about your humble beginnings, uh, where you came from, and how you got into uh, writing, <laughs> got into writing and everything. Sure. Um, well. Sure. I mean, I grew up in, um, outside Detroit. Um, you know, I mean, I got into writing because, um, I mean, it, it was about the only thing that I could think of doing that didn't sort of make me miserable when I was, you know, kind of in college. Um, it wasn't something that I, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm born to do this. This is, you know, this is my, uh, you know, this is my, my all-time goal. This is my dream. But I just thought, you know what, I could sit down and do that. I could sit down and, um, but anyway, uh, left college, moved down to Atlanta, um, and just started writing um, for a lot of free papers, uh, wasn't getting paid very much. Um, but, you know, eventually not getting paid very much, get me, you start getting paid a little bit more and a little bit more, and it wasn't in a couple of years, I was like, you know what, I could, I could make a living at this, uh, and, uh, a bad living, but a living. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's it, every time I felt like, oh, well, this is about to end. It's about to drop off. Cause I've always been a freelancer for 20, I don't know, since 97 or so when I started doing this full time, I've always freelanced. I've never had a, a, an actual job. And, you know, I, you know, I can't tell you how many times where the economy goes down or something that's not working, you know, and you think, all right, it's over. I got to I got to go go get a real job. I got to go figure out something to do. And, you know, something always came along or, you know, I got a good assignment, got, you know, figured something out. Um, and, you know, fortunately, I, I don't uh, live too extravagantly. So, uh, you know, I've never had to. Um, I've never actually had to go get an actual job, and now it's too late. I mean, now it's. I mean, it's now I'm 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 completely unqualified to do anything. So, yeah. And it, and it's funny too because Vic oh, Vic here has been a uh, writing instru instructor at our local community college for yeah. how long, Vic? Like, oh, it was like eight years. Yeah, yeah. I was, how'd you get that gig? Oh man, like I. Yeah, it was, it was like after I finished uh, grad school, and um, and uh, I was look, I was looking for work, and, and well, actually no, like was after after I finished grad school, I was working at, at his call center that a, that a buddy of mine, you know, uh, referred me to, uh, where he worked at, and I worked there for like six months, and it was totally miserable. Um, so after so after that, I was like just searching around for like, okay, you know, where where can I find some work? And then then it turned out that I, I got. Uh, after working a year at this local nonprofit, um, I learned that um, that I could actually apply to be to teach like a, as an adjunct at local community college because I have a master's, so that was like the baseline qualification. And so they were like, "Hey, uh, we have a couple of um, couple of uh, first year writing classes. You want to teach it?" I'm like, "Okay." So I that's why I got on board, and um, I I was like, "Okay, maybe I'll do this for a couple of years and then see where else I can go." And then next thing you know, like eight years later. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, I gotta do something different. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's, that's like I've actually wanted to get gigs like that. Um, 
the uh, I mean, I've done a little. I, I, I taught a writing class once. Um, just a friend of mine had asked me to do it, and you know, I, I, I got paid a little bit. But I actually like doing it, and um, but I just I, I don't know. I've never really focused myself towards it, but I actually I think that's a that's a good gig. Yeah, you know, it it, de- it definitely has its moments. Um, you know, be, being a, being an adjunct, I mean, as you, as you all know, having, having getting a taste of that, it's like the ceiling is only like so high or so low, depending on your perspective. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But um, keep but, telling him that he he has something to write. Like he does have something to write. I always tell him that he just hasn't quite found it yet. <laughs> yeah. I'm still optimistic though. Yeah, like. Uh, well, I know, like for, I know, for me, it's like, um, you know, like when, it, like when it comes to writing, like I've, like lately, I've been trying to, you know, explore like um, uh, more creative, creative writing, because uh, sure. for, because for an, a number of years, in addition to, uh, you know, teaching part time, I was actually, I actually had like a, a YouTube channel, which is still up, where I actually wrote, you know, detailed uh, video essays on film, like different films. And oh, whatnot. cool. Yep. So, um, so that was like from 2013 to 2015, 2016. So I have like, I did like over like 30 videos and they're still, and they're still online on YouTube. And, um, I also do some, um, some long form, uh, writing content for, for our podcast, like with my own segment, Victor's Corner. Gotcha. So, you know, so I still, so I still get that, you know, that writing yeah, no, thing. I mean, the thing is, is that I, I never knew what to write about and that's like, the story of my, like, uh, of, of being a freelancer is like, I mean, I'm always looking for things, but I, it's never about me. Like I'm always writing about, okay, so it's about in living color. It's about, you know, this musician, or it's about this crime, or it's about, you know, it's like anything to, to not have to, to, to point the lens of myself. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So like, I've noticed like too, like, um, like you've, you've written like a, like you've written articles on like a variety of things, like for example, like you know, film and television and music, and even like a um, sure. bit of like uh, politics and sports and technology. So it's like, like for you, is like, is it just like everything that kind of any whatever like piques your interest, like kind of like a like like a cosmopolitan view as far as like topics. Yeah, I mean, you know, the uh, at its best, it's like okay, whatever I can you know, if I can come up with a good story idea and then I can, you know, then it's a matter of finding somebody to uh, pitch it to and who's going to pay me to do it. But, you know, like I came up early on, I was writing a lot about music and a lot about pop culture. And that sort of ends up being, I mean, and and I've I've sort of always been attracted to that and I've always been, you know, just kind of nerded out about all of that stuff since I was a kid so obviously there's a natural affinity to that. Um, but it also, it, you know, it's easy for me to come up with those ideas. I know, I, I kind of know how those publications work. I kind of know um, if I have an idea to write about a TV show or, um, you know, some, something about music in my head, I can already start piecing it together and I already know who to pitch it to. And I already know who's, pre- whereas if I, I mean, you know, I've done stuff about like, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of it, something about a um, a missing child case that that went on for uh, it was like a night, basically 20 years that this girl has been missing. When I have something like that that I want to write about, that's harder just for me because I don't have as many um, contacts who are going to be like, yeah, sure, David, he knows how to get that story together. I mean, I have a couple. 
but it's like if the one or two don't want it, then it's like, uh, now what? So it ends up being, you know, I end up doing a lot of pop culture stuff still, which is fine. I'm happy to do it. But um, I, I was conscious and I'm still conscious of not wanting to be like, I, I you know, I don't want to be the, you know, 60 year old dude who's writing about like the latest pop star. Um, I mean, you know what, even I say that I, I could be that guy. I mean, it's not that bad, but it's, 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 you know, like I, I I'm not, the, I'm not that interested in that anymore. I, I might've been more interested in that when I was 25, but, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I tried, I, I want to be able to write about a huge variety of things. I want to be able to write about whatever, seems like a good story. I and mean, to me right now, like what always attracts me is I don't really care so much what genre falls into. Is this a good story? Is this something that like, you know, people are going to want to chew through. Um, and, and also something that like, I feel like I can actually bring something to, um, that I can be good at writing. Um, you know, like I've done, I have done some tech stories, but they're kind of like, I don't know. I'm like, I'm a Luddite and I'm, I'm terrible with all this stuff. And so they're really personality profiles. They're really like, I wrote about the guy who runs Uber and um, I, I really enjoyed writing the story, but like, I don't know. I, I don't know any of the text side of stuff. And I wrote, you know, the South by Southwest thing. That was actually an editor who came to me was like, do you want to do this? I still don't know why he asked me, um, <laughs> but you know, I was like, sure, I'll do this. And, but all the all of that stuff, sometimes you just fall into something. But uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, it's always like, is there a good story to tell here? And and often, is there a good story to tell that's more than just what you're what what you think it is on the surface? Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let me try. I'm gonna get right to the question. So um, how did the how did the Living Colors uh, project start? Well, I mean. It started actually as a magazine story. I mean, it started because I was, you know, a huge fan of the show. And I, I remember thinking this is about 2015 or so, 2016, uh, 2015 maybe, that there, you know, there hadn't been a lot written about it. There hadn't been, you know, it was very popular when it was out. It, disappe- it disappeared and it, it kind of hadn't gotten that, you know, nostalgia revival yet, or at least not a big one. And I thought, oh, you know, like there's this thing sitting here and, Maybe I can I can go uh, write about it, and so I did. I wrote about it for a magazine, and as I was working on it and started interviewing people, it just became really clear to me, oh, there's so much more here. There's so much more that I'm going to be able to tell in a magazine story. And so, really, even as I was doing the research for that magazine story, I was already starting to like kind of put the the uh, you know book proposal in my head together. Like I could see how this because. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying about stories, like having more than one level, like the magazine story was about this happened. I think, in fact, I think the story was really just about the first season or the, I may not have even just been about the pilot episode. I can't, I can't remember what, what exactly what I was covering, but um, it was very much, you know, a little bit behind the scenes of this happened and that happened and this happened. Um, with the book, I could start to see like, this could really be about, this moment in time, not just about the show, of course, yes, about the show and about all the behind the scenes stuff, but that it would be about, you know, a, a lot of the other things that were going on at the time, like the, you know, the rise of hip hop, the, um, you know, Spike Lee, Arsenio Hall, you know, 
Eddie Murphy to some extent. You know, there was there was there um, Robert Townsend, uh, the Husbands. There was there was all these things, and so it was this moment. You know, we, and I and I wouldn't have been able to. I couldn't have recognized this as it was happening when I was watching this show back in the '90s. But it was this moment where black culture was going from being like kind of. Uh, on the fringes of mainstream culture to being what it is now, which is like the very white hot center of, of pop culture. And this was, and I felt like these years, like the late eighties, early nineties were like a real pivotal uh, moment for, for, for that happening. And so I thought I could kind of tell this story, but you know, through the lens of in living color. And, um, you know, I, I, I could draw in things that were just happening in the world and then things that were happening in, you know, music. And, and so it just seemed like there's a lot here. And um, yeah, and that's, that's, that's kind of how it got from point A to at least the point where I was sitting down and writing it. Yeah. So, and how hard was it to like reach out to like certain, you know, cast members and, you know, writers and producers who are on the show or, or even Fox executives? Sure. Sure. Well, you know, there's kind of like a, uh, I mean, obviously like in my regular work, as a freelancer, I, I, I'm doing a lot of that. I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing people a lot in terms of both, you know, whether it's behind the scenes people or, you know, you're, you know, the stars, your Keenan Ivory Wands, your Jim Carrey's, people like that. So, I mean, I kind of know, I knew the, the, the playing field of that, but, you know, it, it's interesting. There's like two different challenges that are completely different. Like sometimes finding, like getting in touch with like writers is a matter of like just, you, you got to track people down. Like if it's not somebody who stayed, you know, there are people who wrote on the show who then like, you know, when quit being TV writers and went on to something else and, you know, you just got to track them down and find them, you know, that's, you know, just kind of like reporting one-on-one, I guess. Um, but like, the, you know, the, the parts about like, you know, getting, uh, you know, the, the kind of stars of the show to talk to you, I mean, that's always a challenge and it's always a frustration. I mean, I mean, I, in this case, the fact that I had done that magazine story, I had already talked to, to most of them, not all of them. I'd already, in terms of the, the stars of the show, I had already kind of, and so in that case, I had kind of built a, a little bit of a bridge already. Um, and I also, like, you know, the thing with Keenan specifically, like I talked to him like, and this is kind of almost really what set me on, oh, I could do this as a book, is I talked to Keenan for hours when, I, when we were just working on the magazine story. I, I remember I talked to him, it was two or three times, just phone calls, but, like, they were, like, two-hour phone calls each time or something. And I was like, geez, you know, I mean, I have, I have almost everything I need from Keenan already before I even started working on the book. Now, I, I could have, I hadn't talked to him about, like, um, you know, growing up and things like that. It was all about the show. But anyway, so there was that. But in some cases, you just have to be patient. And, um, and you know, like, I'll give you two different examples. Like, Jim Carrey and Jamie Foxx, who probably the two biggest stars, you know, to come out of the show, at least the ones in terms of right now. You know, Damon was obviously a huge star coming out of the show. But in terms of their profile now, uh, Jim Carrey and Jamie Foxx are, are, are still massive stars. And with Jim Carrey, you know, he's got a publicist, he's got a manager, and, you know, it's just a, a, a very patient massaging of 
like first you convince them that it's going to be a good idea. And everyone always wants to know who else is doing it, who else is doing it. They don't want to be the only one who's like, you know, talking to this guy. And so as you start getting well, I've already talked to all these people, it starts looking a little bit more like, oh, well, this guy's legit. You know, he's already talked to David Allen Gurr. He's already talked to Keenan. He's already talked to Damon. And so with both uh, Jim and, and Jamie, that process is ongoing. And it's like, I mean, it's months. It's months. In fact, with Jim, it, well, I, basically what ends up happening is so I finally got Jim on the phone, talked to him. He was very sweet. Talked to him for an hour and a half, maybe. I don't remember exactly. Um, but, you know, like very uh, generous uh, all, all good. So with Jamie, I'm, I'm supposed to talk, you know, I can remember I had this, it's set up. I'm, he's supposed to call me this time, whatever. Well, you know, five o'clock on this Wednesday or whatever it was, doesn't call, you know, I'm sitting there. All right. It's not uncommon people. And then it was like, you know, so it didn't happen. And then we were trying to reschedule it. And we were trying to reschedule it. And we were trying to reschedule it months and months and months. And at this point, finally it goes on for so long. The book is done. Like I've written a book. All I'm waiting for is Jamie Foxx so I can drop in some, you know, some some quotes from him and maybe some stories. And you know, the book is basically done. And in, in the end, I ended up just cutting bait. I just had to say like I can't wait. Any, you know, I can't wait anymore. So I didn't end up talking to him, which is, I mean, he's he's the one guy who I didn't talk to who I feel like ah, you know, I I, I wish I had, but um, you know, like I. I, if I'd stuck around for another six months, it probably wouldn't happen. But, you know, I, you, your publisher has deadlines, and it's like, you, you cannot. At that point, I, you know, I, it wasn't like Jamie wasn't going to be in the book. Lots of people talking about Jamie, lots of quotes that he'd given to other people, and so it was fine. But, you know, it happens. You had to, it was disappointing, but so it goes. Okay. So, um, and please forgive me if I, I was like coming up with questions while I was at work and stuff. So please excuse me if this, I apologize early if my uh, questions seem like all over the place, but what was your most fascinating story? Like that you end up like learning about the show or, or at least like your journey onto getting this book done and getting, getting all the information that you needed. Well, I mean, there were, there were a bunch of like really, uh, um, you know, what I thought were like fascinating stories, you know, just kind of behind the scenes stuff. You know, most of them are in the book, obviously, um, or they're all in the book, I hope. Uh, you know, I mean, and a lot of them are kind of like, uh, you know, the whole sort of Jennifer Lopez, Rosie Perez, uh, you know, like they apparently hated each other. They nearly got in a fist fight. Like all of that stuff is, is there was there was so much stuff with the Fly Girls. Like for some, considering, I mean, obviously they were a big kind of part of like the show and the, and the style of the show, but yeah. like they weren't what I thought I was going to spend a lot of time writing about because it's just, I mean, what do I know about dance? I don't, you know, like it just, but there were so many like story, like it was drama all the time with the fly girls. Like, and you know, they all hated each other. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, they didn't all hate each other, but there was, there was just a lot of like, uh, you know, there was a whole thing which is in the book. I can't try. I'm remembering it sort of as I'm talking about it. But there was this whole effort to make the Fly Girls into like a, a uh, like a music group, which like yeah. essentially like the Spice Girls. But this is even before the Spice Girls. 
And like, I don't think I even was able to put all of it into the book because there was just so much just like craziness around like, you know, who's going to be the lead singer. People are pissed off because JLo wants to be the lead singer and somebody else wants to be the lead singer. And then there's, uh, and there was something about, Oh, the, 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 I think this is in the book. I remember there was some, because, uh, I, I'm pretty sure this is in the book, but, uh, like I said, I, I wrote it a few years ago. So I might, but, um, there was, there was, a, uh, they were, in at Virgin Records, I think, which is where they were, they, I think it was at Virgin. They had a um, they had a deal there to to make a record, and they were in the bathroom of, at Vir- like yeah, it, they're in the bathroom talking shit about um, is it Paula Paula Abdul? Paula Abdul, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Talking shit about Paula Abdul. I mean, you couldn't like I I, I had to check this story with so many sources because it seemed like. No way did this really happen. But they're talking shit, like, you know, washing their face, whatever women do in the bathroom. But, um, they're, and they're talking shit about how much, how awful she is. And she literally flushes the toilet and walks out of one of the stalls at Virgin Records. And, you know, supposedly that, I mean, there were a lot of reasons why the, this, uh, record deal never happened, but that certainly didn't help because she was like, at the time, the golden goose over uh, you know, at the record label. Um, so there was stuff like that, but that I, I mean, I those stories are always fun, and you know that they're going to be good in the book. Um, but you know, I, I'm trying to think, uh, and I love it. I guess maybe because because I'm a writer, maybe because I'm a writer, I like the I like the stories of the writers. Um, you know, all the stuff going on in the writers' room, uh, just. People like, you know, it's like it was very dog eat dog in the writer's room. People, the, the, almost the best people to talk to, especially for like a book like this, are the people who had the worst time at the show. Somebody was there for like a year, they got fired, they didn't get any of their sketches on. Because those people are, you know, like they have so much to say. Like they've got a, you know, they, they've got a chip on their shoulder about it. And so like those people, you know, people like that always had a lot to say. Um, and, and, you know, in a way that like, that's, even though you like, like I worked so hard to get like, you know, the David Allen Greer's and the Keenan's and the Damon's and, and Jim Carrey's into the book and to talk to them, like the book is built really the, the, well, I mean, Keenan's obviously talking to him at length, but, but so much of the, the architecture of the book is talking to those people who no one knows their name. They were the writers, they were the producers, they were the directors. Um, because when you go to them, you know, they're happy. They've got three hours to talk to you on, you know, whenever, you, and I'm not, they don't always have three hours to talk to you, they have lives, but they're happy to, most of them are happy to talk. Um, no one's really asked them this stuff before. No one, when even when In Living Color was big, no one wants to talk to some random writer from the writer's room, you know, no. you know that's just not, that's just not what happens. So, uh, so yeah, so I mean, I, talking to all of those people for a book like this is really where you get like so many of those great stories. And then, you know, I can remember like that story about the, the fly girls, like once I, like I've got that story in my pocket already. And then like the second time or something, I talked to Keenan, I remember asking him about it 
and he was, I mean, he thought it was hysterical. He's like, oh my God, I forgot that. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's exactly, I totally remember that. And then he remembers another little nugget. And, you know, piece by piece, you, you can start, you know, building this, you know, building the whole, the story and really filling it out and really getting those details in there. Yeah, because, I mean, and one story that did stick out to me was um, the alleged fight between Keenan and oh, Jim Perry at the table reading. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great story, especially because it has like a it has an afterlife. Because and, and I did I remember talking to both Keenan and, and Jim about that story, and there were a lot of other people at the table who told me their little bits. But but you know the the, the idea you know they it's totally I don't think it's you know two guys like very creative, very passionate, getting into it at a table read. I'm sure it happens you know frequently enough, but the fact that that Jim like starts talking out of his ass at Keenan. And that becomes this thing that he later does in Ace Ventura. Like it, it kind of like gave that story, like a, a, another reason to like sit there in the book and be, you know, kind of a, you know, more than just a, just a funny anecdote. Yeah. I also found it amazing too, that like nobody wanted Jim Carrey to do Ace Ventura. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the, a really funny thing about when you do, I think, I'm sure it's for any books about, um, you know, Hollywood or anything, you know, what, what's the, what's the phrase like, uh, success has, uh, you know, a million, you know, fathers and, and failure is an orphan or something. I'm butchering whatever the, whatever the, but the, the, the idea is that, so when things go bad, like everyone, like when you talk to people about it, even 25 years later or whatever, when I'm writing this book, there people are still looking to assign blame. Who canceled? The, you know, who thought this was a bad idea? Who who canceled In Living Color? Who did this? Who did that? There, I mean, people were passionately arguing about this stuff 25 years later. Um, and meanwhile, when somebody has a good idea, everyone's rushing to say, "Oh yeah, you know, I I I I told them I thought it was a good idea." But yeah, Ace Venture. Everyone thought it was terrible, and, and you know, it, it was one of those scripts that had been bouncing around Hollywood for a while. I think uh, Chris Farley was attached to it at some point, um, or some other people, and, uh, you know, at that point, Jim didn't have a, a, a movie career. Um, you know, he had done a couple films before, before the show, before In Living Color, but none of them had really done much. Um, but yeah, you know, he, he, it's, it's all to his credit that he was like, you know what, I can make this into something. And he was right. Although, you know, when the show, when, when the movie came out, it got terrible reviews. Like people, you know, I, I remember Siskel and Ebert hated it and everyone hated it, but you know, uh, time's funny that way. Yeah. Odds are it's one of my all time favorite movies. So, yeah. Yeah. I was a kid. I, mean, I was a kid at the time. And um, and our chat said that Victory has a hundred fathers is an orphan. What's up? The the quote Victory has Victory has a hundred fathers and defeat is an orphan. Oh, I wasn't that far off. I was, I was no, pretty you were. close. I was pretty close. Who did, did, do you know who said it? Who, who it's credited to? That I have no clue. Hopefully, uh, Angela, who's in our chat, can uh, let us know. But um, yeah. yeah. Wasn't Jim and his staff the comic book thing? 
comic then. Yeah, he was a uh, Jim Carrey was an established comic uh, right before Living Dirt in Living Color, correct? Oh yeah, he was a stand-up. I mean, that's how he—that's how he and Damon knew each other. They were at the comedy store together, you know, kind of uh, in the '80s, I guess it would have been. And yeah, he was just—I mean, Jim's Jim's whole career, I mean, literally to this day, is, is fascinating. I mean, he started out—he was—he was really an impressionist. He, you know, he was like going to be like the next Rich Little, and uh, you know, he and he. This would be, you know five years before In Living Color, at least. And he decided that he didn't want to do it. Uh, he didn't want to spend his life in Vegas, you know, doing stupid impressions. And he, and he completely just threw his career out the window and started going up at the comedy store late at night and just trying to figure it out. Like, and he would go up and he would do, like, you know, these weird bits and he wouldn't get much, many laughs. But he and, and, and Damon was at the comedy store at the same time. And Damon you know, was also doing a lot of like crazy sort of left field things on stage. And that's what kind of brought them together. They were these late night comics at the, at the comedy store. And like, you know, this would have been like probably 84, 85, I'm guessing. Yeah. So um, has your perception of it living color changed after you wrote the book? You know, this is going to, yes, but like, I mean, okay, so when you start out, well, when I started out with this idea and what I was talking about before, well, this is good, In, in Living Color is kind of like the, you know, a way to tell this story about this moment in time and, it was, you know, the, like, that's like a, you know, it's a hypothesis, really. And like, you're, like, when I, when I even as I, you know, sent the proposal to publishers and you know, like, I, I know I sounded really confident about it in the, in the proposal, but you don't know if it's really going to bear out. And so if, if, if my perception changed, it was like that it actually changed in the way that I thought it, like, it confirmed, it, it did bear out. Like, and when I started talking to people about it, they're like, yeah, 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 you know. And so in that way, my, percep my perception changed um, just, just that it was it was more than a funny show. It was an important show. And I guess the other way that, um, I don't know that I ever really sort of got down so sort of in the bones of a, of a show to really understand how it's put together on a week to week basis. And this is maybe not so much to do with in living color, just to do with making a sketch show, but like it's like, Making sketch shows is unbelievably hard. It's unbelievably hard to like come up with funny things that you know that will work. And you know, it's just there's so many things that go into it. And you know, it's funny. Like one of the um, things that that most sketch shows. I mean, some of them like make a point of not doing this, but but to be honest, like most, whether you're talking about Saturday Night Live or In Living Color. Uh, even Chappelle's show, um, there's this whole thing about recurring characters. Yeah. And basically, the writers hate them. This, oh, so they, I mean, from a creative standpoint, no one really likes doing it, maybe, maybe a second time. But when you're starting to do it like the fifth, sixth, seventh time, and it's like, you know, but, you, but when you... But then when you understand how hard it is to make a sketch show, when you get something that works, 
like the business imperative to keep doing that again and again is very high. And that's kind of, I mean, you know, behind the scenes in Living Color, there was a lot of pressure to do these recurring characters, uh, you know, to do these characters more and more, whether it was, you know, uh, Fire Marshal Bill or, you know, Homie the Clown or whatever. And, you know, the more each time, it's almost like each time you do it, there's less, there's less creative juice for it. Like the, 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 you know, the performer is less interested. The writers are less interested. Um, but, you know, and I think the more pressure like Fox and, and the producers put on to, to keep doing it at In Living Color, you know, the, the more Keenan became disenchanted with the show. Um, I, I think it just becomes less interesting. I mean, you know, so, but I guess that, that's just to say, when I, th- when I think about, like, my favorite sketches from the show, a lot of them are things that were never repeated, you know, um, that came once, and, you know, like, I think about, like, The Wrath of Farrakhan, um, which was, like, very early on, which I yeah. think is just, oh, just brilliant, like, just so funny, and, and the kind of thing that you would never have seen on TV you know, the whole idea of even doing something about Farrakhan. Farrakhan. Um, there's another one called uh, Timbuk, the runaway slave, which is like, you could, if if you watch that right now on YouTube, it could have come out yesterday. Like, it, it does not need, like, a word of updating. Like, it's just, you know, and, and stuff, I don't know, like, those are, and, and you can see, I feel like people have a lot of creative juice for those. Whereas if you watch like the seventh fire marshal bill, it's like, all right, you know, like it's funny watching Jim contort his face laugh, but, but you know, I don't, I'm not getting any kicks from it. Like, you know, in season five or whatever, but um, anyway, I'm not sure if that answered your question. I think I went on a little bit tangent. So what was it like talking to Keenan, you know, talking to Keenan? Cause he's one of those, like, he's one of those personalities that you really don't see in the public eye anymore. Like he'll, you know, he'll make his sporadic appearances here and there, but you really don't see much of him. And then obviously reading from the book, you know, people who still, you know, had their different, you know, experiences with Keenan. Like, what was yours like? Well, I'll, I'll tell you that my whole experience with him, because it's, 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 and it doesn't necessarily have a particularly great ending. But, um, so the first time, the first couple, I remember the very first time I talked to him. You know, like, I mean, he's a very, uh, I don't want to say he's cold, but he's not, you know, he's not bubbly and generous, like, in, in like from the minute one when you get on the phone with him. Um, I mean, he may be, and you know what, t- having talked to enough people about him, I think that's a, a fair thing to say about his personality. He's, he's, he's analytical, um, he's suspicious, and I remember the first time I started talking to him, and it was like, the first 15 minutes was a lot of, you know, I could tell he was like holding back, kind of like seeing whether I really knew what I was talking about, if I was going to ask him like intelligent questions. And then, you know, as you sort of like get into it and he starts warming up and he's like, you know, you know, he, sometimes it can be like pulling out something that he had forgotten about that obviously shows that you had done some research or you knew your stuff. I don't know what it is. And I can, I can only guess in his head, but he started warming up and he started actually, he was a great interview. And so then we talked, like I said, I think we talked 
can't remember if it was two or three times. It was definitely at least two times because I remember, I remember Seth telling him, I want to talk to you at the beginning of the process and then again at the end. But I think one of those might have gotten split up into two calls or maybe not. Maybe it was just those two calls. But And then the second time I talked to him, it was like, okay, we're, you know, he, he, he's ready to talk with, you know, and he, you know, he, he's an intimidating dude. Um, now I like, I, I don't know if it would have been more or less intimidating in person, but like, he's not afraid to let things be silent when he doesn't want, when he doesn't want to talk about something when he doesn't want, um, doesn't like the question, whatever it is, he'll, he's very comfortable with silence, which is, I, I think it's actually in some ways strategic on his part. I, I think he's like not necessarily talking to me, but in just in general, most people aren't comfortable with silence. And so if you can sit there and wait somebody out, then you might, you're, you're, you're in better state to get what you want out of whatever this conversation, transaction, whatever it is. Um, but anyway, so we, we talked those times and then I went back to him again when I was, when, you know, I had the book contract and I was like deep into working on the book and I said, you know, and I had mentioned, I think the last time we talked, oh, you know, I'm thinking about, I think I mentioned, I think I mentioned, I'm thinking about pitching this as a book to, to somebody. I think there's a lot here. And I don't remember what his reaction was. If he was like, yeah, I mean, well, there wasn't a, a strong reaction one way or another. <laughs> he wasn't like, oh, that sounds great. I can't wait. But I think he was like, oh, yeah, cool. You know, good luck or whatever. And then when I came back to him to say, look, I, I, you know, I've got a ton. I, I don't, we don't need to, like, talk about all the stuff we've already talked about. But I'd love to talk to you about growing up in New York and all this stuff that we haven't talked about. And he wouldn't talk to me. Um, and, and so, you know, and I spent, you know, this is like, I mean, I texted it with him. I mean, I never really, the reason why he's, he told me he didn't want to talk because he was working on, I want to say what he called it was like an in living color legacy project, which I didn't know whether he meant uh, like a documentary or writing a book or well, like in, in my head, I think I thought, oh, maybe he's writing a memoir and he wants to save some of those stories for himself which I totally would have understood. But I, to be honest, I never got a straight answer about it. Like I, and I, I basically flat out begged him um, to, to just, you know, I was like, whatever you need me to do, like, but, and this is what like everyone told me once he makes a decision, it's done. It's dead. Um, and, and in the end, it actually, there's ways that actually probably helped the book. Because when I had to go back and write about their early years, I had to do a lot more research. Like it would have been a shortcut for him to just be able to tell me this happened and then this happened and this happened and blah blah blah. But I would, you know, I like literally visited the building they grew up in. Um, I talked to people who lived there, and they're not quoted in the book because because it didn't really make sense. But but a lot of the information they gave me about what it was like around there and you know what the playground was like. And, you know, some people who knew, knew the family back then, but, you know, never kept up with them. They just lived up, you know, but it's like, you know, I track people that it was a ton more work, but I also, but I think I probably got a better feel for what it was like back then in some ways. Plus I really then dove, I don't know, maybe I would have done this anyway, but I like bringing 
bringing in the element of what, like kind of zooming out a little bit and saying, what was the world like when in 19, you know, 74, when he's, you know, in elementary school, or he's in, well, I know he would have been told him that, 1974, he's like in high school. But anyway, but like, like trying to recreate for the reader, like what it felt like to be like a person living in New York at this time in this neighborhood, because on the news you're seeing whatever, you know, um, Bernie Getz shooting people on the subway, you know, that was, I guess that was the early, early eighties, but what, but, but whatever it was. Um, but anyway, so that, that kind of, um, so I, in the end, I don't really know, um, what happened with, 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 with uh, why, why Keenan really didn't want to talk. I never, I never, you know, got back in touch with me to say, oh, good job on the book, or I hated the book, or it's not. Um, so I'm just sort of left with, I don't know. Yeah, because I, I did go on, like, some of the medias, like Marlon, Shippens, uh, Kelly, who also liked that picture. Um, yeah, and none of them seemed to, like, actually, like, promote the book and, any, like, made any post of the book, and I was... And it got me wondering, like, if, were they against the? Even though, I mean, they couldn't have been against the book because they yeah, partake, like, they partake in it. Yeah, you know. So, all right. And, and to be honest, that exactly what you just talked about was the the the, the real thing that screwed me up about Keenan deciding not to, you know, want you know want to be involved because, like, in trying to sell the book. Like, yeah, it would have helped me so much if I could have had, I mean, a couple of people like Tommy Davidson did, you know, do some things for me. And a couple of people did do some things like, but not much. And it basically, the, the good, here's the thing. When Keenan says he doesn't want to do anything, that means his whole family. I mean, again, I'd already talked to all of them. So they're all in the book. I interviewed them all. But when, when, when they're not, when Keenan's not going to help, you know, that's, they're all not helping. And that's, you know, two thirds of the cast right there. So, 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 you know, it, it kind of like puts you in a, in a bit of a hole. Um, so yeah, so that part, I mean, that was a bummer. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think it would have been better for, for the book sales if they'd come out and been like, I hate this book. It's wrong about everything. It probably would have been, cause it would have created something. But I was just yeah. like, you know, like, and I don't think that's the case. I mean, like, they're all quoted accurately. No one's, I mean, it's been several years since the book's been out. No one's come to me and said, that story didn't happen, or this is wrong, or I can't believe you did it. You know, I feel like somebody would have said something, or I would have heard something if they were, but, you know, like, Keen kind of like, I, I, I the, the one person that I tried very hard to get to help promote the book who, it, it's just like Jim, Jim Carrey, like was very, like, I, I, I feel like if he, if he was like an inch less famous, I would have got, you know, he's just, he, he's Jim Carrey. He doesn't have to do that shit. So, right. uh, and so I, you know, I, I was begging for him to like, Oh, let's do like a, a an appearance at a bookstore or let's do an appearance on a podcast. And, uh, yeah, it's not just taking me back to those times. And that's like the, the only part of, uh, of working on the book 
the only part it, it's it, like it, it's the it's the only like lingering frustration is that I, I couldn't work that out and, and to be honest it kind of all took me a little bit by surprise I thought I, I've never been good at selling things anyway and so the whole and even though I had written like I you know when, when I wrote a book with Stevo Stevo promotes it I don't have to I don't have to you know I don't do anything. Um, so this is the first time it was like on me to figure out like how to drum up interest. And I suck at that. Like I'm terrible at it. And, you know, I wish I would have had a more uh, thought out plan A, plan B, plan C. You know, plan A isn't going to work because Keenan doesn't want to do anything. All right, well, here's plan B. I can do this. I just didn't have anything. And, you know, so live and learn. And I just had a question on my head, too, like I'm on the top of my head too, and just completely forgot. Um, are there any stories that didn't quite make the book that make it into the book? Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Um, well, there's two. The, the two answers to this is that one, if there is, I've probably forgotten them by now, um, just because, like, and and I mean. The difference between, like, obviously a book and a magazine story is, like, anything that's really good is going in. Like, sometimes yeah. magazine stories, you only got so much room. You end up losing all sorts of great stuff. The book, you know, I could make it 30 pages longer if there were 30 more good pages. The one, the one thing that I remember being cut, which actually, in, in retrospect, um, I agree with. But, I mean, it was in, like, my first draft of the book. There, I had a lot about... They rebooted. They tried to do. They tried to reboot the show in like 2011, 2012. I forget. It could be off by a couple of years, but they tried to reboot the show, and they actually shot a couple of, um, you know, they shot a bunch of sketches. And I had a ton of material on that. I don't know why I went so deep with it, but I just like I talked to everyone from it, and like you know, there was a couple of interesting people. Uh, what's his name? Um, from Get Out, not Jordan Peele, but um, oh, Lil Ralph Howery. Is it Lil Ralph? Yeah, yeah. Lil Ralph was um, was was one of the cast members, and I talked to him, and I and you know like uh, I just had I you know I had a whole chapter on it, or like a long chapter at that, and in the end it was just the editor was like we don't really it's just kind of going nowhere. And, and, and I was like, yeah, but I did all this research. But uh, she was right. Like, you know, I, 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 no, it's mentioned in the book. It's in there, but it's not. There's nothing that everyone needs to know. Yeah, it seems, it seems like that we can't have an Olympic color in this day and age. You know, not just alone with, you know, not just because of culture and it, but it's like, you just go on your phone. You have TikTok. That's your living fine with how you have Instagram is your living color. So yeah, it seems like a living color. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some feedback. There's some feedback. I'm having trouble hearing you guys. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. Wait it out or something. Uh, it might, oh, it's, just a, it's just a Zoom problem. Yeah, it it, it, it could be. Um, yeah, there might might be some feedback on on your end, Carl, with the 
maybe iPad. Um, but uh, um, but but yeah, I actually actually did have a a question. Um, and and I know you you talk, talked a bit about this in your book. Um, I know that uh, at the time when In Living Color was on the air, Fox was a pretty was a pretty new network, and I think they called themselves the the bad boys of television. Yeah. And, and um and and dis- and despite that moniker, um I know Keenan and Ivory Wayne's had some he kind of butted heads with the Fox censors or standards and practices. Um, can you tell us a bit about that in terms of like wh- in terms of like the the sketches that he managed to get on the air and like if he had to fight tooth and nail for some of the more controversial ones, especially like say Homie the Clown or even Men on Film, uh, which is probably the most infamous sketch uh, in the, in the yeah. series history. So. Yeah, there's that's it's a whole, um, it's kind of like a whole book into itself. Almost. Um, let's, hold on, let me let me turn down my volume, maybe. Yeah, that's probably what my. Can you guys still hear me? Yep. Yeah. Can you guys still hear me? Yep. You're yeah. Right. Loud and clear. All right. Um. So, oh wait, I know what I can do. Hold on a second. Sorry about that. Now it's yeah. It's the magic. It's the magic of Zoom, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um. No, it's still there. Oh. All right. It's just I'll, I'll, try, I'll try and talk, but it's, it's kind of weird because I keep hearing myself. Um. Sorry. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I know that there was um in the show's history, like uh, there was like some. Some um, budding, budding of heads, some static between Keenan and Ivory Wayans and uh, the Fox censors and standards and practices. Um, and can you tell, tell, tell us a little bit about that in terms of like um, what sketches that Keenan managed to get on the air, especially some of the more incendiary ones like Men on Film and Homie Declan and other controversial ones? Yeah. So um, with, with the censors, there was a guy, there was like a specific guy who was like the standards and practices guy from uh, Fox, who like was an older white dude that everyone had nothing but nice things to say about. And actually, um, you know, I, I think that they like had, had a bit of respect for him. Uh, you know, they weren't sort of crazy in terms of like, uh, like like Keenan had a very Keenan, not just Keenan, but a, but a couple of the head writers. This guy Les Firestein, they, they had like very specific strategies for dealing with the network censors. And and this is not an uncommon. I've heard lots of people do things like this. But you basically turn in the sketch with a bunch of stuff that you know is so far out of bounds, because you want them to cut that stuff so you can protect the things that you really want. And this was like a common theme of like what in all of this stuff that we know they're going to cut with the, with the idea that they're not going to cut or we can argue for, we can say, well, you took out that of like, uh, you know, us, us saying like Dick or this, this, you got to give us like the aspect because we already, we already, there was like a negotiating, it was like horse trading for like, you know, oh, um, that kind of stuff was, was kind of like standard operating procedure. Now, there were certain, uh, like when you talk about men on film, I'm sure this is in the book, and, and, I, and I'm trying to remember this as best as I can. Um, with There was, 
a lot of nervousness at the very beginning with Men on the Hill. And this, in some ways, actually like gives some credit to Fox. Because, um, you know, as we know, no way that gets on the air. Like, it's just, it, just, it's just not, it's not okay, really. It's just not okay. But, uh, you know, at Fox, at the time, I think, I, I hope I'm not banging for exactly, but, but um, you know, they, were, they were worried. They were worried about that. This is going back to the pilot. They were worried about that film. They were worried about um, the wrath of Farrakhan. Um, I don't think they were too worried about homie. I don't remember that being, but was it men on film? What men on film that they were worried about? Yeah, they yes, they were worried about men on film for sure. Um, but, uh, I remember, I think it was with, I'm pretty sure it was men on film that the final thing was they told, uh, I want to say it was Barry Diller who was in that box come to the table. If you think the laugh is wrong or people don't like it, you know, come, come to the taping and, you know, if you say, if it's no good after you see it in the taping, uh, you know, we'll cut it. I think you're absolutely murdered and people were, you know, laughing that, and that was it. It was like that, you know, the laugh wins out kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think the thing about Fox, I mean, like, I remember there was another story that I really liked um, was this is before the sh when, when Keenan was still developing the show and trying to get, get and they wanted to bring on this, um, what they called a consultant. Uh, and it was basically this, like, older black man who was going to kind of, I mean, I think he, he wasn't from the NAACP, but it was, or maybe it was from well, the NAACP, it was some organization basically want to be paid to say this stuff is okay. We're not going to protest it. It's fine. And Keenan was like, I'm not doing it. Like, if this guy doesn't have any jokes, I don't want him. Like, he, like I don't need some, some other black guy to say that, like, my, my sense of myself as a black man is not good enough. You know? Um, and, he, and he, you know, drew a line in the sand and, he, and, and, and you know, won that argument. Um, and I, and I do think that he was good at winning arguments until the point that he got, he just got too tired to want to, to argue with people. Anymore. I don't think that the stuff with the censors is ultimately why the show is not on the air. I mean, sadly, this, the, the reason why the show, what, why, why, why the Wayans left the show, why Keenan's family left the show were a bunch of dumb business things. That are, you know, they're all in the book. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't really need to kind of... But the thing that really struck me about it is, you know, it's like people got upset. He felt like the show was, you know, out of his own control, blah, blah, blah. But everyone involved, Keenan, the producers, talking to them 25 years later, they all regret it. They all knew... They could all look back now and say, we had just calmed down, taken a breath. We could have worked this out. The show could have lasted longer or it could have, you know, it, it could have, like the thing that the, the, the conversation that I always was having with people is like, how many times have they said Saturday Night Live is terrible, it needs to stop? I mean, they don't say that anymore because now it's just such an institution, but pretty much from year two of Saturday Night Live, everyone was talking about how it's not as good as it used to be, like it's 
they lost all their funny people. Like it, it, this is just a cycle. This is what happens at the at sketch shows. You you lose cast, you lose writers. You got to start over. You got a couple lean years, and hopefully you 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 know find a formula that works again. And the question is like, could that have happened with in Living Color? And I think the answer is probably yes. Um, you know that like the cast probably needs to turn over. You know. Jim, Damon, they're gonna, they're, they're probably gonna leave. Although Jim was signed up for a sixth season, and and um, I remember somebody said, you know, like th- there were already people like hanging around the show towards the end, uh, you know, backstage, they're friends with somebody, people like Chris Tucker, people like Dave Chappelle, and you start thinking, geez, man, maybe they, how, uh, Chris Rock was gonna do. I mean, obviously Chris Rock was involved in the show anyway. But he was he was signed up to do like season six of the show as kind of like the he was going to be like the MC, like the kind of Keenan character. Um, And you start thinking, man, if it could have hung on and maybe there would have been, you know, by season eight or nine, it's like, yeah, it's Chris Rock and it's Dave Chappelle. Who knows? I mean, of course, that and maybe that happens and we never get Chappelle's show. And so it's, you know, that that would be a tragedy in and of itself. But uh but yeah, you know. It, so anyway, the the, the very long-winded answer to a, a fairly short question. But the the stuff with the censors, I think that they handled it pretty well. And actually, I don't think Fox was unreasonable for 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 their time. I mean, they didn't get stuff, but that's that's their job is the suits. The suits aren't supposed to get stuff. But you know, uh, I think I think I think everyone I think that stuff worked out better than you than people might have thought yeah we say that a lot because obviously we're a nerd culture podcast and we always talk about you know the uh you know the marvel versus dc the movies you know the the movies that are different it always seems that you know it's always pretty consistent that the suits over at warner brothers always like get in the way of all like the dc films and that's why like the bar is pretty low where it seems pretty it seems much different on Mar- you know, on Marvel's end. Sure, sure, yeah, and it's interesting because I mean, there is always like the the idea is that like the suits are always screwing things up, and 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 yes, that is definitely a thing. But I've actually like done stories, and and there there are examples where like sometimes the suits have been right. Um, like sometimes like you get some people are good at being creative executives. Um, I mean, there there were definitely times, even in Living Color, where I felt like reading this back 20 years later, I'm like, yeah, like I'm not sure that that, that this guy was wrong just because he happened to be, you know, working over at Fox. Um, you know, it's it's always our natural instinct as fans, as consumers, to side with the creators, to side it, and, and I think that's good. Like that's a, that's a that's a good thing. But but you know, there. The, I'll, I'll stick up for the suits every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, so who would you say was a very underrated character from In Living Color? You mean like a sort of underrated cast member? Both, like a character in that cat and a cast member. Because, I mean, there's, you know, everybody talks to Fire Marshal Bills with the Medons. And me personally, I would say, like, one of the characters that I feel doesn't really get enough respect that people don't really talk about that were hilarious was um, uh, Frenchie and 
uh, Oswald okay, the Frenchie, how, the, the story on how Frenchie became, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, was hilarious, though. That's but a, I'm not glad you included that one. Yeah, that's a great story. I'm trying to think, well, I'll, I'll, I'll answer this, the, the first part first, which is, like, in terms of cast members, I think Kelly Cofield, uh, I, two, two people, I'll say. I think Kelly Cofield and David Allen Greer. Now, David Allen Greer has had such a long career, um, that, like, it's hard to look back now and be like, he was underrated. But I think on the show, he was a little, he, he, he kind of, you know, he, he was never one of the big breakout stars. Right. Um, and if you go back and watch, he doesn't do anything wrong. Like, he's, like, like I'm just saying, like, all of his stuff is 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 right in the pocket. Like, he's, he's so good at those, at, those, at those characters, whatever the characters are, um, David Allen Greer is great. Kelly Cofield also is so much funnier than people remember. Um, uh, and 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 in terms of characters, I'm just having trouble remembering some. I remember there were okay. Damon, maybe you'll remember this and just trigger my memory. Damon and Keenan did a pair of brothers. Brothers, 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 brothers. That was those were great characters, and those are characters that stand up. Like you can watch those things, and they're still cutting and harsh and and funny now. Um, so yeah, the brothers, brothers, I really liked. Yeah, you know what? A funny thing is, is that like, and I think I said this a little bit in the book, or maybe I did. I don't know. But um, everyone shits on season five of the show. That, you know, like, the Wayans are gone. they got all these new cast members. There's actually some funny things. If you go back and watch season five, there is a surprising number of, like, like, that's better than a lot of sketch shows that have come since. Like, there, that's better than many seasons of Mad TV. Yeah. Um, you know, like, it, it, it's, uh, you know, yes, it's what it's missing is actually, like, I actually think that there's part you could you could almost put it up against definitely like season two and season three of that uh, of, of In Living Color are great, but season five might be better than season four. The only what it doesn't have is that it doesn't have a point of view the way that the other seasons do because the right. plane of the god it's all over the place. So there's this sketch about whatever you know. There's the sketches are kind of they could. I, I think this is in the book now that I feel now that I'm saying, but like they didn't seem like sketches that couldn't be on Saturday Night Live, mm. which right. is both, I guess, a compliment and an insult. Like it, it's just, what, why does the show exist if these kind of sketches are? If these are the kind of sketches that could just as well be on Saturday Night Live, whereas like when you watch the first three or three and a half seasons, there's n- like very few of those sketches could have ever been on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, because um, I actually, I have all the box sets. And I have to agree with you. Like, season five, do, season five does not get the respect that it deserves. Like, you had, um, let me see, the Candy Cane sketch, if you remember. Yes, yes. Yeah, the, 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 the children's uh, whatever it was. Children's. Yeah, they're kind of, like, exploiting all the backstage stuff during that sketch. Chief P, who's always been one of my favorite characters. Um... The, the umbilical 
umbilical, what was it, umbilical berry? <laughs> like stupid, but like still kind of funny, like like pretty funny. Um, but it's, again, like all of those sketches, they're not they're not really about you know the same culture that, that the first three and a half seasons. Right. right. It seemed like it just would kind of they kind of broaden their horizons instead of just keeping it within like black culture and hip hop culture. It kind of yeah. like expanded it, you know. Little by little. And Jay Leggett, God rest his soul, that I learned from your book that he passed away. Jay yeah. Leggett was great. Very funny. Very funny. Yeah, like you wonder what he might have, you know, if he might have had a bigger career. And, um, yeah, he was very funny. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I don't know. Um, I, 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 I did find a lot more in season five than I, than, to, to like than I had expected. Yeah. Um, and also too, um, with um, looking at the uh, sketches on In Living Color, um, you know, and, and and it's amazing that you know that we can still you know look back on the show, which is like you know thirty years old. Uh, but um, but looking but looking at the, some of the sketches back then, even even like from the most popular ones to the most underrated ones, um, what are some other sketches that you feel still resonate and still hold up to this day, thirty years later? Besides like uh, the Brothers Brothers. Um, some sketches that still have their bite. Yeah, I mean, okay, so the, one of them this is the one I already mentioned, which is Timbuk, Runaway Slave, which I still, I mean, it's it's harsh in, in like the best possible way. I mean, it's all about, you know, you know, race relations and, you know, it's just like how far we haven't come. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, yeah, I think it's an amazing sketch. Um, I also think that the first probably two homie homie the clown sketches are great like look they're really there's a lot packed into it mm. and um so yeah and i think those definitely hold up mm. absolutely and also like a personal favorite uh sketch of mine as well as carl's is uh damon wayne's character oswald bates uh who <laughs> Who just said nothing but complete gibberish, but he thought he sounded intelligent, and and I and I was really amused by the the origin story which you mentioned in the book. I was I was like, wow, okay, I see where they got the inspiration from. Um, yeah. Yeah, so many of those characters came from like you know their neighborhood or people they knew, and um, you know, Damon was doing some of his characters when he was like 17, 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 Another horror story that stuck out to me was how he came about. Oh, how what came uh, How what came about? I'm sorry. Handyman? Oh, right. That's right. Um, God. So that was, uh, that was, you know, obviously it was because, you know, Damon has, has grew up at a club club. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was and right. It was something that he had tried to do on Saturday Night Live, I think. I think. He and um, I think it was the, I think it was a sketch that, that he, he was originally trying to do on Saturday Night Live. They, they said it was too dark. He couldn't do it. Um, but, yeah, ended up, on, you know, ended up working. And, and I, again, that's one that's funny. I maybe he doesn't get on the air today. Yeah, because the funny part is, for a living, I work with people with uh, developmental disabilities, so that they actually showed it to 
a group of, you know, people with right. disabilities, and they found it funny. So it's like, okay, if they can find it funny, let's run out to be a hit. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for remembering that, because I forgot that part of the story. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and... And also too, um, I know I know we mentioned like some a, a lot of like breakout stars from the show um, who who went on to like successful or even more successful careers. Um, besides the besides the, the the stars that we saw in the show, um, what were there any writers, uh, people in a writers room that also got their breakout, uh, that also got their big break on the show and went on to like uh, other well known projects that that you know of? Sure. Or uh, I mean the, the big. A couple of big ones, like Larry Wilmore, yeah. basically got his start on the show, um, and you know he, he uh, obviously has gone on to many things. Another person, I wouldn't say he got a start on it, but who did write on the show and who I've talked to multiple times is, is Colin Quinn. Hmm. Um, this he he was uh, a writer on the show, and I think that would have been season five actually. Um, he had, he had been on the show now. A ton of the writers have gone on to like do very well for themselves in the world of writing, but, but aren't big names otherwise. Um, but, you know, like, I mean, that, that's part of the interesting legacy of the show is that you've got, uh, like, most of the, the um, most of, like, the big comedies from, like, you know, most big TV comedy from, like, the 90s, more actually sort of getting into the late 90s early 2000s probably up until a couple of years ago you could almost always find somebody in the writer's room who worked at living color, in living color um so i mean that's a that's a pretty interesting legacy and, and that was actually one of my questions possibly one of my final one like what do you think the legacy of in living color is because it, it's amazing that so many shows like the show's been off about 25 years to, like in living colors DNA than like modern television right sure yeah I mean it's interesting because when I was writing the book there was this real um, kind of renaissance of, of black TV happening shows like Atlanta and insecure and uh, well the Carmichael show which I've seen not more more blackish and some of those shows had actually fairly direct ties to In Living Color, like whether through like the writer's room or people, um, some, some more indirect. But I think, you know, it's kind of like what I was talking about before about uh, the show was part of this moment that changed like pop culture's focus. Um, if you think about like, and this is in the book to some extent, like talking about like what a wasteland uh, TV and movies were for a black actor in like the late 70s or early 80s. You know, there were there were no real parts for you. I mean, you know, yes, you want to be mugger number two. You want to be, you know, the valet. You want to be like at best somebody's sidekick. There weren't there really weren't jobs. There weren't black TV shows. There weren't like major black films. Now you started to see that change before in living color, um, you know, with Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy, obviously being huge, he was sort of like this almost silent godfather of the show for a lot of reasons. But, um, you know, you start seeing that change 
uh, and then you start, uh, and, and then all of this stuff that comes after, um, you know, I think is part of its legacy. I mean, sure, you can say, well, there was, you know, uh, Chappelle show and Key and Peele, um, and, and, and these other black sketch shows, and yes, that's part of the legacy, but, but those, all three of those shows, um, are very different, like in, in their, um, you know, I remember talking to Neil Brennan, who was the co-creator of, of Chappelle's show, um, and we were sort of talking about, like, what sketches from uh, In Living Color could have ever worked on Chappelle's show, and there are some, and, and vice versa, but there aren't that many. It, like, Chappelle's show is a much angrier show than In Living Color was. In Living Color was playful. Even when they were being mean, they were playful. Uh, like, Chappelle's show has a sharper edge, for better and worse, mostly better, but, but it, it, like, it's, um, when, when Chappelle's show is being funny, it's, 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 there's so much anger embedded in it. Whereas, Key and Peele, for example, was m playful but different, playful but a cer more cerebral than in Living Color. Um, not always, but, but again, you wouldn't burn a ton of Key and Peele's uh, sketches that could, that I could have seen on 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 uh, in living color. So I mean, yeah, those are those are all legacies of the show. But more, I just think it's like a legacy of that moment, like this changing of culture, this this way. I mean, now I mean, people don't think twice. I mean, all pop culture is essentially black culture. Like it's just different. Well, you know, it might be being done by white people. I mean, and this is a this is a story that way predates, obviously, um, you know, the '90s. I mean, white people uh, speaking for speaking for white people right now have been stealing black culture since you know the beginning of time. So, um, you know, stealing, appropriating, whatever. But but, but I think what we have now in, in pop culture is. The line, you know, black culture has become so much pop culture that people don't even necessarily, unless it's super blatant, they don't see. Like when you talk about somebody like, uh, like uh, the bad example, well, it's a, somebody like Justin Bieber, okay? Yeah. Justin Timberlake, like these people are soaked in black culture, but you know, like I don't. That's the especially with something like Justin Bieber, that's not one of the top 10 things people are complaining about. about him. You know, like it, because, but because to, 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 to be fair, he came by that naturally. That's what he grew up in. He grew up in pop culture being black culture. And so that's what, that's the, the legacy of the show. It's the legacy of all of these things of, of, of do the right thing of the Arsenio Hall show of, you know, trading places and, and 48 hours and Beverly Hills Cop. It's, it's the legacy of all of that whole moment is pop culture now. Would you ever want to write about another landmark TV show? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a matter of like feeling like I've got a story to tell that hasn't been told. Um, I feel like this story hadn't been told exactly in the same way. Um, you know, I've, I've got other book ideas that I'm working on, not specifically about one TV show, but I like talking about moments in time. Right. Um, so 
you know, it, it, uh, there, there's a couple of other ideas I have about looking at a certain moment in time in pop culture. But to be honest, like, it's it's not always easy to find the kind of the bigger story. Like, I don't want to just write about, like, you know, Seinfeld. Like, Seinfeld was a very funny show. Um, and by the way, people have already written about it. But, but I, to me, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I would have to be able to think of something bigger about it. Um, you know, and there are shows that that'll work for. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm going to start it on. And uh, this is probably my final question. Unless Vic has some extras. Uh, what advice would you give to any up-and-coming writer? Like somebody who wants to write the kind of stuff that I want to write? Or that I well, write? And, yeah. Well, yeah, any type of writing whatsoever, like any type, like aspiring authors or freelance writers. Um, my first advice would be, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's great if you can make it work. And, and there are days when, when, when my job is going well, it is 100% like the exact thing I want to do. But like any, uh, any job... That doesn't happen all that often. There's lots of days where it's just frustration. Um, but I guess what I would say more seriously is that, I mean, there, there are a lot of, like, very, like, nuts and bolts things. Like, be reliable. Like, you can't uh, underestimate, like, how, how good it is. Like, from, from an editor's point of view, whether it's you're turning in a book or you're turning in a story, like, just do what you said you were going to do. Like, if you're making a, if you if you promise that a story is going to be in a certain day, just turn it in, get it in that day. Like, it's, you know, you want to you, you're in the business of like, getting work and making yourself an easy option for people. Um, and it's uh, like, I don't have the luxury of being, like, so amazingly talented that people will want to work with me even if I'm an asshole, you know? Like, you've got to, I mean, I know, like I, I'm sure there are people like that, and if, and, and if the person I'm giving advice to is that talented, then they don't have to follow this advice. But most of us are not that talented. I mean, you know, I feel like I'm pretty good. I feel like I'm always getting better. Um, but be like a decent person to work with. Like, if... If I have problems with an editor, I won't scream at that editor. I'll scream at the wall. And then I will politely explain what I want or, you know, my problem. And that doesn't mean that I have to do everything they want. You've always got the choice to walk away or whatever. But, um, yeah. So, I don't know. That's that's my mangled advice. Hmm. Okay. That's awesome. And, uh, that's yeah. awesome. How do you think? Yeah, and, and yeah, and just uh, just one one final question from from my end to wrap up. Um, uh, what is is there a is there a, like a, a like a dream project that you've always wanted to uh to do, whether it's a book or an article or, or just like a really deep dive on something? Like a it could be like any project or topic or subject that you've wanted to tackle for years but just never got around to, or maybe you're in the works of of of, of doing at some point. Well, I'll tell you two things. One is that if I really was in the works and I thought I had a great idea that no one else had, 
I wouldn't tell you. But that's another piece of advice. Your ideas are all you've got, and if somebody else gets them, then you could be screwed. But um, I will tell you that because it's sort of related to this book. Like I, I, I really, really, really would love to write like a. There's no thoughtful, smart biography of Eddie Murphy. Mm. Um, partially because he's like so hard to get to, and people don't. I've heard it through the grapevine that somebody else is already working on this, which is why I'm. And I just, and, I, and in some ways, even writing this book, I was already thinking like maybe this is my way into that. Maybe I can like Eddie reads this book, and but I don't think it's going to happen, which is why I'm happy to, to to give that away as a dream project that I just did. I just think that in a strange way, Eddie Murphy is actually underrated. Um, he. he I think he was like a huge, huge, huge cultural influence, not on black culture, on all culture. Um, I think that uh, despite the fact that almost all of his movies for the past 20 years have been terrible, um, another thing that's probably not going to make him want to work with me. Um, but, but uh, you know, the movies that he made basically in the 80s and early 90s are like almost flawless. Like they're so good. And, you know, people, there's, there's five books about Richard Pryor. There's zero books about Eddie Murphy. Hmm. And, I, and I could make an argument that Eddie Murphy might be more influential than Richard Pryor, even though Richard Pryor is the per- first comics name out of everyone's mouth. Um, but Murphy turned comedians into rock stars um, in a way that even Richard Pryor couldn't do. Um, so anyway, I'd love to do that book. I'm sure Eddie's a listener of your podcast, so when he hears this, he can <laughs> he can reach out. <laughs> All right. Really yeah, and I, hope that, I hope that does happen. I'll read the shit out of that book. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but... Uh, yeah, guys, this has been a, a, a wonderful uh, conversation, David. Once again, uh, thank you so much for uh, uh, joining us tonight and just you know sharing your experiences uh, writing the book in Living Color. Uh, my pleasure. It's been great talking to you guys. And um, yeah, yeah, thanks for, for, for reading it and caring enough to reach out. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and also... Uh, the door is definitely always open for you. So if you want to... Not met, not sure if you have you know if you read comics or anything at all. Feel free to you know, feel free to say hey let's do another show. Hey we'll do it. Cool. I mean if if if, if I have uh, something I feel like it's up your alley to to talk about then I, I will uh, hit you guys up again. Definitely. Absolutely. And also um before we, before we sign off uh, David uh, where can the good people find you? Um. In the room over my garage, but um, <laughs> they, uh, I'm, let's see, uh, what, God, I'm so bad. I, I think my Twitter is just at David Peisner, P-E-I-S-N-E-R. Um, that's probably the, you know what, I'm, I swear to God, I'm going to check and make sure I haven't just given out the wrong Twitter address. <laughs> <laughs> so freaking embarrassing. Um Yes, I had it right. Thank God. Okay. Um, nice. You know, I don't know. I don't. I, so, uh, and you know, my website, which is really just a collection of my work, is uh, 
www.djpeisner.com. So, yeah, they can check me out there. They can Google my name and find out uh, whatever recent thing that I've been writing. Awesome. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks so much, guys. All All right. Thank you very much. All right. right, Take care. All right. You too. All right. Yeah. So, so yeah, ladies. So yeah, people, party people. That was David Peisner, author, freelance writer. Um, you can find his book, uh, Homie Don't Play That. That the story of In Living Color and the Black Comedy Revolution, uh, in bookstores everywhere. Uh, hardcover, paperback. Um, definitely check it out if you're a fan of In Living Color. It's an excellent read, as Carl and I can attest. Um, Carl, salutes to you, good sir, for getting the man on the show. That was great. Awesome. Um, one question I did want. One question I did want to ask him, and I just thought of it. What was the better Eddie Murphy movie? Harlem Nights are coming to America. But you oh know. yeah, that would have been a good one. But we we know it's coming to America. But anyway, uh, people, you can find our podcast um, and um, and all and all of the good good shenanigans. Um, yes, coming to America is a better movie. Um, on you can find us on uh, on Facebook live every tuesday normally every tuesday at 8 p.m eastern standard time occasionally on wednesdays but we'll let you know you know depending on whenever we have to switch nights um you can also find us on instagram at codex prime podcast twitter at codex prime cast you can find all of our episodes on soundcloud as well as spotify iHeartRadio, um google play and also itunes where you can hit us up with that five star review and uh mr bird anything else I'm still in shock. That just happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That just happened. Like, I, I, I couldn't believe that we got him on tip. We got him, and it, it was great. It was just it's just what I thought it was going to be. Like, I was learning, learning so much about the show. Like, I, that's going to be my, my next bench. Once I'm done with Living Single and Living Color is going to be my next bench. Because now it's like I'm getting different perspectives on the show, I'm learning mm-hmm. new things, and it's like, all right. Let me watch this again now that I'm in my 30s. And yeah. I, <laughs> I understand stop with the Hollow Nights. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I have to watch it. I have to watch it all over again. Oh, yeah. But um, yeah, we can, you can find us uh, on social media at Codex Prime Podcast on Instagram, Codex Prime Cast on Twitter, obviously on Facebook. And thank you very much for everybody for tuning in. Dude, yeah. that was a blast. Yeah, absolutely. And we thank everybody in the chat, uh, good friends of the show, Angela Marandola, Aaron Ferguson, uh, and of course, uh, B-Rob uh, for, for chiming in uh, earlier. Titty um, Meat! Yes, yes. Um, yes, in living Titty Meat. But um, but yeah, you can also find us on social media as well. You can find me at Victor Omoyo on Instagram as well as on Twitter, where I post uh, favorite films and film recommendation stuff. You can find Carl Bird on Instagram at MrBird1027. Um, let's see. And also, speaking of living single, um, just had an idea for another tournament. Uh, black sitcoms or black TV shows. Oh. Get it together. I'll get the panel. Yep, I will. I will put that together. I'll let you know what's going to be on it. Um, yeah, um, and a spoiler alert: Homeboys in Outer Space will probably be the be the winner. So, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> if somebody writes a book about Homeboys in Outer Space, I'll be I'll be in, I'll be surprised and mad at the same time. <laughs> and guess what? I'll still read the shit out of it just because it's Homeboys in Outer Space. You're like, you're just why? 
Yeah, you know. Just why? Yeah, yeah. Just, just, just why indeed? You, you know. I, I, although I do think that, on some level, if played carefully, Homeboys in Outer Space could be one of those random properties that get, that gets rebooted and actually turns out to be good. I mean, you never know. You never know. I don't know. It could be like the the Black Mandalorian. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, uh, thank you all so much for watching and, and listening. Um, we will uh, we will catch us next week, next Tuesday. We got some more nerdy goodness and magic. Um, I'll be talking about stuff that I've watched, um, uh, and and uh, and how I um, you know how I fell into the dark side and, and got a Disney Plus subscription. But more on that next week. Yeah. Uh, you did. <laughs> yep, but uh, but more on that next week. Uh, as always, thank you for watching and listening. Uh, we will always we will catch you on the flip. Peace out, nerds. Later.